On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, no wastage in making this award-winning oil. This is really the byproduct. When we press the oil, what's left over is um, a press cake, and that actually gets milled down into the flour. So our flour is really, uh, really popular with bakers, uh, and we often sell out of the flour before we sell out of the oil each time we do a batch. And two decades of the screw cap on wine bottles. Such a great idea, the winemakers, realising they had one of their best 2002 vintages on hand. Just put it aside in the vault, thinking we're going to do this tasting in 20 years, just to show how well our wines age and how we could only ever do that with Screwcap. It's one of the great modern inventions which saw the demise of corks in the Australian wine industry. That story coming up for you. Also, the making of a hazelnut oil in Tasmania, which has turned the judges' heads. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, where there is some rain about. We'll check in with the Bureau to see what's expected over the next few days. The halfway stage of the program. And details of an Australian record yarding of sheep and lambs at the biggest sale yard in the country and what that meant for prices. Richard Bailey has the details in the second part of the Country Hour. You too can join the action via the text line with your thoughts, 0438 922 936, that number, 0438 922 936. First up today, farmers around the country are trying to keep up with the ever-changing price of fertilisers and just exactly what the market is doing. Fertiliser is more expensive than ever, but outside of individually calling distributors, there's no easily accessible information on fertiliser market prices in the country. As Luke Radford reports, that's led to the creation of a national census to try and shed some light on the situation. The cost of fertiliser has been dominating discussion across the Australian agricultural community for almost 18 months now. Farmers know the price is going up and roughly know why. But outside of that are countless unanswered questions. Is it different across Australia? Are there vast differences between the suppliers? In short, is the market transparent enough? No, it's not. If you think about some of the other commodity markets ranging from livestock to grains, etc., there's certainly much more current, up-to-date information. Mick Keogh is the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Well, we certainly in looking at markets, recognise transparency as a very important element to, if you like, rebalance unbalanced market power. So where some participants in a market have quite a deal of market power and then a lot of participants don't, getting that information is key to making things fairer in those markets. So if you look at the work we've done in relation to the beef cattle markets, in relation to the dairy market, in relation to the horticulture market, Dairy in particular and beef cattle in particular, we had a very strong focus on market transparency and making sure there is good, readily available information to all participants on both sides of any negotiations in those markets. And that's certainly historically and uh, right around the world, that's a real focus of making markets work better is making sure that there's really strong flow of information on a timely basis to all participants in those markets. Market analyst Andrew Whitelaw has had the same issue. He says it's difficult to provide feedback on fertiliser prices because the information just isn't readily available. Our company, we, we work as data analysts, and so we analyse markets, uh, we analyse sheep markets, wool markets, 
uh, cattle, goat, pigs, chickens, grains. And how we can do that is by having access to data. And by analysing those markets, we can put answers out there into the market and help, I guess, farmers, but also buyers make more informed decisions. But you need data to do that. You know, you can't, you, you, otherwise you're just making a guess. From this lack of information was born a novel idea. If the sellers won't provide the price, get it from the people who are actually buying it instead. And thus was born the fertiliser census. What we looked at was more of a, a community-based solution. We've asked fertiliser companies in the past for pricing, but it's not forthcoming. And so we said, well, all those farmers out there who are getting quotes for urea or DAP or MAP, well, we've got a very simple form. You just fill it in. You say, well, on the 12th of November, I was quoted $1,250 a tonne at Geelong for urea. Boom, it goes in there. But then the more people we get filling in it, we can do more analysis and we can provide insights into, well, how does our price in Victoria compare to New South Wales or WA? And probably more importantly, how does it compare to the rest of the world? Same as we would do with the grain market, we would look at wheat and say, well, are we expensive or cheap versus the rest of the world? We want to be able to do the same with, with other uh, agricultural costs that, that farmers have. And it's all, you know, we, we, we're doing this as a sort of, I guess, an interest piece. And all the information that we provide from it or make from it will be publicly available. If a lot of this discussion feels familiar, it's because it is. In fact, the ACCC looked at this very issue way back in 2008. The ACCC did or was instructed to conduct a, a market inquiry into fertiliser prices in 2008 with, with very similar background uh, to the current situation. And it's certainly the, the structure of the market then and now is very similar. That means some key information is in the hands of a very small number of players. And in markets, often information is king, so they don't necessarily make that uh, easily available to participants in the market. That's basically the way the, the market operates. Whether or not the ACCC has another look at the fertiliser industry is a question for the federal government. But in the meantime, the fertiliser census has uncovered a few interesting insights. Look, we found, surprisingly, a lot of consistency. There's not a huge difference between the top and the bottom of the market in a, in a particular state. Uh, there is some variance between states. Uh, I think Western Australia was the, the most expensive. But generally quite variable and not a huge difference between fertilizer companies when it comes to price. But the key thing about it is that the more data that goes into it, the better. So the more people that, uh, that fill it in and the more people that provide that data over a longer period of time, the more uh, consistent sort of analysis we can provide. It's market analyst Andrew Whitelaw ending that report by Luke Radford on the fertilizer census. And if you want to participate in that census, you can head to episode3.net three being the numeral, and look for the link on the main page. Take part, and uh, then farmers around the country will know more about fertiliser prices. Well, the hazelnut orchard in the state's north has taken out two of the three major prizes at the Tasmanian Fine Food Awards. Hazelbrae is a 5,000-tree site in Hagley and took out the best Tasmanian exhibits and the Richard Langdon Trophy for the best overall exhibit for its hazelnut oil. Owner Christy McLeod told Aaron Cooper the win was a pleasant surprise. 
we went down there to celebrate um, the end of the year with our team team at Hazelbrae here and uh, we end up coming away with two of the three major awards for the food, fine foods. Obviously you put a, a lot of work into producing the hazelnuts and the products you make from them as well. Was it an example of your hard work paying off? Yeah, look, we've been producing this oil for a few years now. So we launched it in 2014 and, and our customers always tell us how amazing it is and it's always really nice to hear. But I guess it, until until some really, really high-class judges tell you it's the best hazelnut oil they've ever tasted, um, you probably you know it's up to everybody's taste buds isn't it so um yeah when, when you it's, it's a nice credit hazelnut oil is not one of the more common oils people might be familiar with what are its uses primarily so yeah so hazelnut oil um because it, we produce it out of our our small nuts and our nuts that are not uh, as pretty looking as so it's basically our uglies um and uh so you know it's not it's not something that people because hazelnuts are a really new industry in australia there's not a lot of spare hazelnuts around to produce an oil uh, and so uh, we, we use it on salads and salad dressings uh, we use it in anything milk based so it's great in a, um, an iced chocolate and you can make sort of a Nutella flavoured cho- um, iced chocolate with it uh, we use it in the cafe for um, hazelnut cappuccinos um, at, in ice cream so we've made ice cream before with it as well uh, it's also a really good um, frying oil so it makes an amazing crispy skin salmon because uh, it's got a high smoke point, so you can get it nice and hot uh, while you're cooking with it. And this time of the year, we also really like it with asparagus and broccolini. So if you're, if you're tossing it in in a pan, gorgeous with a little bit of bacon uh, and, and even some hazelnuts thrown on the top as well. It um, So it's both a seasoning oil and a cooking oil. Yes, and, and a sweet as well. So one of the other things we like to do in berry season is make a hazelnut cream. So you just whip the cream with some hazelnut and some sweetener and make a lovely, luscious hazelnut cream to go on top of berries. So for those who haven't heard of hazelnut oil before, what's your actual process of creating the oil from you know from start to finish? So once we grow the nuts, uh, we actually store them in the sheds while they mature. So the nuts aren't ready for eating really at the at the time of harvest. We actually wait a few months before we start cracking any of our product. Uh, we wait for that nice nutty flavour to develop. And then um, with, the, with the oil, we actually wait at least 12 months before we actually process that into oil because as the flavour develops, it gets sweeter and it gets uh, more nutty. And so we're finding that that makes a better quality and better flavoured oil uh, once, we, once we wait that time. And what's the process of actually extracting that oil from the nut after that 12 months? So it's a cold-pressed um, product. The, we actually send it to a family in Victoria who, are, who have oil in their genes um, and they've been, their family's been pressing oil in Europe for hundreds of years. So they're really, really good at what they do. So um, they use a, a quite an old um, hydraulic press and it goes into, into the press in layers and with a steel plate between it and then it just simply gets squeezed until the oil runs down the sides and then that goes into a vat where it settles and all the sediment falls to the bottom um, and then they tap it into our jars into our bottles so how long does the process take then from you know obviously getting those nuts off the tree to having a bottle of hazelnut oil 
So, um, so growing the nuts takes around 12 months from the time that, or 18 months actually, from the time that we uh, we first start seeing the signs of the buds uh, in January to um, 14 months later we start seeing nuts, nuts drop off the ground. Then we wait another 12 months for them to mature, and then um, and then it takes around about six weeks for the pressing and settling to happen. So we're looking at, at around about two and a half years from the time that we start fertilising the trees to grow the nuts to the time that the bottle is ready to ready to drink. You mentioned that you use your uglies to sort of create the oil. Does that create any byproducts that you can then do anything with? So that, th- this is really the byproduct. So um, the, the, when we press the oil, what's left over is um, a press cake, and that actually gets milled down into the flour. So our flour is really uh, really popular with bakers, uh, and we often sell out of the flour before we sell out of the oil when we, each time we do a batch. So you produce flour, oil, and the hazelnuts themselves. Yeah, that's right. And looking around the orchard here, it's looking pretty green. How's it gone with um, a lot of the rain we've had recently? Yeah, look, we probably had more than what we'd prefer. Um, we haven't been able to mow the orchard. Normally in spring we mow the orchard every week uh, and we haven't been able to mow for four weeks because it's been too wet for the tractors to move through the orchard without doing too much damage. So, uh, so you know, look, everything was looking a bit hairy at the beginning of this week. So we've been out there busy uh, mowing everything and doing a bit of weed control. So it's looking tidier now. We've got 5,000 trees here uh, and we, uh, at the moment, we're yielding around um, 21 tonnes was our last harvest and then our new fertiliser program that we've just started working on this year we expect to double that in the next two to three seasons. Hazel Bray, hazelnut owner Christy McLeod talking there to Erin Cooper about their plans to double their hazelnut yield after taking out two of the three major prizes at the Tasmanian Fine Food Awards. The hazelnut industry going very well in the state. How long since you pulled a cork out of a bottle of wine? probably some of you last night maybe, but uh, it's been a long time for a lot of people who maybe have never seen a cork in a wine bottle. 20 years since the Stelvin cap, the screw cap, and uh, we'll celebrate that moment in just a minute. This week on Landline, as China turns away from Australian wine, India is shaping up. It definitely is a market that Australian producers are looking to invest in, um, particularly once the free trade agreement comes into force. And boot-scooting life back into WA's small halls. Those town halls, there's just so much heritage in them and so much feeling. That's Landline Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on iview. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Stay in touch, 0438 922 A vital link in Australia's food supply chain, the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, says it's exposed to difficult seasonal conditions without a formal support system. The association wants to create a type of self-insurance scheme to deal with the difficult years. Megan Hughes has the story. COVID-19 border closures, drought, flooding rains and the threat of animal disease incursions. Like the rest of Australia, rural truck drivers have been facing a lot of difficulties these past three years and they know there are more difficult seasons to come. Warwick Fraser owns a livestock truck fleet in southern Queensland. He says the challenges have been mounting. Add to that, obviously, the significant costs, blowouts that we've seen recently in terms of all operating costs, fuel, you know, diesel prices, you know, have doubled. 
add blue supply issues and uh, pricing there has, um, has doubled. And right through to, you know, we've come in the last three-year period, we've come through droughts, we've come through flooding rains, which are hugely disruptive to, um, to any form of transport, and now the significant staff shortages. It's certainly been a, a, an extraordinary and, and challenging period for, for livestock transport in general. Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association Executive Director Matthew Munro says if the pandemic proved anything, it was how important every link in the food supply chain is. Rural transport, I think as we've seen in recent years in particular, it's an essential service. Uh, without uh, transport on the road, we see um, staple items in supermarkets that uh, can run out and mum and dad consumers feel that pinch pretty quickly. Now the industry is hoping to better future-proof itself by establishing a type of self-insurance scheme. Mr Munro explains how it'd work. Our concept is based on the farm management deposit schemes that are already in place. Uh, They've been there and working for many years and they are in effect a a multi-peril insurance scheme, so a self-insurance scheme I should say. So a participant uh, in a good year may have surplus income and they're able to make deposits into a farm management deposit scheme in that year, uh, which would be then tax deductible uh, in the year that it's deposited, uh, but it could be withdrawn later and taxed at that point. And so a later point could be a year in which the business was struggling uh, and needed that money. Mr Munro envisions it would be available specifically for rural and livestock transporters who are at the mercy of seasonal conditions but critical to food security rather than the whole trucking industry. I think anyone who is dependent on the seasonal conditions could really benefit from a scheme like this. I think there are other parts of the trucking industry that uh, are not as closely dependent on seasonal conditions and wouldn't have as strong a case for a scheme like this. I mean, any any business um, does face threats and, and uh, I think everyone accepts that. It goes into business. It is, it is a, a risk that everyone takes. But I think when you're so closely dependent upon seasonal conditions, things like whether it rains or not, uh, I think there's a, a very strong case, as has been demonstrated with the Farm Management Deposit Scheme, to, um, to have a similar kind of scheme in place to deal with um, all of those type of um, threats that could come from the agricultural sector. The idea is still a while away. The industry group wants government support to undertake modelling to determine exactly how this scheme could work, what the costs would be and the net benefits for the rural transport industry. A federal government spokesperson told the ABC in a statement that they are open to further discussions. The compensation schemes available in the industry at the moment really stop at the farm gate. Mr Munro says it's important to strengthen the resilience of this link in the supply chain to keep trucks on the road and food on the shelves. What we have is a highly competitive industry with quite a bit of churn at the bottom. It can be difficult for people to get in and make a start and, and to become established in this industry. We all want low transport costs and uh, efficient transport. And so I think there always will be some churn. But I think it really impacts negatively on everyone uh, when you have unnecessary failures of businesses that really only fail because of seasonal conditions. And it's not because of any, um, you know, poor operation of the business itself. Sometimes it just comes down to timing when you've entered the business or uh, you know, a combination of circumstances that are all external. Uh, I don't think anyone would have thought about uh, you know, the combination that we've seen recently. 
Operators like Mr Fraser are welcoming the proactive approach. You know, when the chips are down, look, you, you need all these sort of types of ideas and, and, and options available. Somewhat insurance policies there for, um, for when times, times get tough. I think it's great that, um, that the industry is looking at, at these issues um, importantly and, and putting them on the table and particularly giving them oxygen at a state and federal level. And that's Warwick Fraser, who runs a livestock truck fleet in southern Queensland, ending that report from Megan Hughes. And we also heard from the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association Executive Director Matthew Munro. They want to create a type of self-insurance scheme to deal with difficult years for the rural transporter industry. Well, fed up with their best wine spoiling, 14 winemakers from South Australia's Clare Valley band together two decades ago and unknowingly began a movement that would see the global wine industry change forever. In the early 2000s, only 2% of Australia's white wines were bottled under screw cap. Now that figure stands at 98% 20 years on. Demetria Panagiotaris has the story. When you head into your local bottle to grab your favourite wines, you probably don't overthink the fact that most of the wines you see have a screw cap. But in the early 2000s, cork dominated the tops of bottles and screw caps were known as a trialled but failed experiment. However, all that was set to change after 14 winemakers from the Clare Valley met in a pub one night. Andrew Hardy explains. The the cork taint problem in world wine, but especially in Australian wine at the time, was huge. And through the 90s, we were paying a lot of money for what was supposed to be very good corks and they were not. And we were getting huge cork taint problems. The winemakers in Clare gang of us got together and, and we started talking about doing screw caps. Remembering that screw caps had been done before in the um, late 60s, early 70s. It wasn't brand new technology, but it, it fell foul of uh, people didn't like it back then in the 70s. It was not received well back then. We thought we could change that perception. What came after that discussion was what Mr Hardy called a media blitz. They literally hit the road to show people exactly what screw caps could do. Once the consumers started seeing it, the convenience factor came in as well. They didn't need a corkscrew anymore. But it really was, it was not at all about convenience. It was all about quality in the bottle. And, we, and you know, that's, we were able to show people. And really, we were only in the beginning of people drinking table wine in Australia. It was, you know, because up until the early 60s, it was a fortified industry. You know, most people drank port, beer and tea. Um, so, the, you know, the wine boom hadn't, had only just really started in Australia. So... I think that the learning curve was very quick. People sort of got to realise that, that it didn't taste any good, some of these wines, so they, they were more willing to change. But it, the publicity and the, and the promotion that we did was vital. You know, the whole, the whole wine world looked at what we were doing with real interest and um, as, you know, saw an opportunity. Winemaker Hilary Mitchell from Mitchell Wines recalls her family being the first to go all in, bravely bottling both their red and white wines, and she backed it completely. One of my first jobs actually when I was at university was doing the in-store tastings for mum and dad. So I'd go around to bottle shops and everybody would be asking like, what is this? How do you open it? (laughs) Isn't it just for cheap wines? And I was the face on the street (laughs) trying to explain it to the customers. But people liked the fact that they could open it quickly and easily and put the screw cap back on. And it was just those initial kind of people missing the romance of cork. But once they realised it was easier and better quality, it was a no-brainer. Hilary Mitchell credits a few things to the screw-capped shift success, among those the power of numbers and the gift of foresight. I mean, part of it was 
being at the, the right place at the right time. Just the world was ready. It just needed people to actually say, let's do it. And the fact that it was Clear Valley putting their premium Rieslings under screw cap was just that little push that everybody needed to go on board. Because so many other people had tried to do it and it almost sent their companies broke. I think 20 years later, I mean, some people drinking wine now probably never even had a corked wine. They don't know the world without screw cap. <laughs> so they probably wouldn't realise that it was something 20 years ago that happened in a, in a pub in Clare. I mean, it was such a great idea for the winemakers, realising they had one of their best 2002 vintages on hand. Just put it aside in the vault, thinking we're going to do this tasting in 20 years, just to show how well our wines age and how we could do that, only ever do that with screw cap. Managing Director of Taylor Wines, Mitchell Taylor, calls that night at the Rising Sun Hotel a meeting of the minds. Oh, globally, I think we were really the ones that, that drove the initiative. Uh, we were pivotal for making it a success. And as soon as we could prove that success, the rest of the wine world really embraced it. A lot of the large UK supermarkets were sick of having customer complaints regularly about cork. And so all of a sudden we eliminated all the wastage and, and all the customer complaints. Um, other regions around the world started to copy us. The New Zealand winemakers, they, they followed shortly after the Clare Valley winemakers. So, yeah, we were really instrumental in making this a great success around the world. Tony Battalene, CEO of Australia Grape and Wine, says that although there was some hesitancy in the beginning, the Clare Valley's influence on the global shift was immense. Well, what we were concerned about was the fact that consumers wouldn't accept wine under screw cap. We thought that people liked the sound of the cork coming out and the theatre of a cork being taken out of the bottle. So it, that, after that initial trial, I guess, from the, the, the Clare Valley, it started to get adopted around the world. And what we found was consumers actually liked it. It was convenient. And that was really important in that you didn't have to have a corkscrew in your back pocket. So uh, it was a gradual thing. But now with probably 98% of wine in Australia is produced under a screw cap. I, I, think, I think absolutely we were the leaders in it. And because Australia went to screw cap so quickly, because of the quality aspect and because we exported a lot to markets like the United Kingdom back back then and the United States in particular, those two markets started to adopt this. Then everyone else saw that it was working because those consumers would, would try take it. So I think our influence was the pathfinder was immense. Australian Grape and Wine CEO Tony Badaline ending that report by Demetria Panagiotaris on the second decade, the 20 years of the Stelvin screw cap for the wine industry. Still to come on the country, a record number of sheep and lamb go through Australia's biggest livestock yard. But what did that mean for prices? Richard Bailey has the details coming up for you. We'll check the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says authorities know who is responsible for the Medibank cyber attack. The company has confirmed a third round of stolen customer data has been released on the dark web today. Anthony Albanese says he's authorised the Australian Federal Police to 
reveal where the attack originated from later today. More than a 1,000 people have gathered at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra for the Remembrance Day National Ceremony. Today marks 104 years since the armistice that ended World War I. The UN Atomic Watchdog has warned it believes Iran has further increased its stockpile of highly enriched uranium. The IAEA has also criticised Tehran for continuing to bar its officials from accessing or monitoring Iranian nuclear sites. And a decision on a Tasmanian AFL team could be months away, with federal funding for a new stadium at Macquarie Point yet to be secured. The state government has committed to funding half the cost of a new inner city stadium for a team, but the federal government is yet to pledge funds, with feasibility work still being undertaken. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. Hi, Michael. How are you going? G'day, Tony. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Bit of a change around in 24 hours. Yesterday, beautiful. Today, yeah, yeah. And wasn't it hot last night? Wasn't it <laughs> hot yeah. and windy? Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is there been much uh, rainfall in the gauges? No, there hasn't been a, a lot. The the rain that has fallen has fallen in about the central north and northwest. So, uh, Quimby. I'll read through the twenty four hour figures. Quimby Bluffs had and Jackie's Marsh have had twenty nine millimeters. Pine Tree Rivulet. 27, Erebus said 25, and Wynyard 18. Did I say Erebus right? I'm, I'm, Erebus, I'm not yeah. Just, yeah. Just near Wilmot, I think it is, yeah, in yeah, the northwest. Right. Yeah, down the road from Devonport. Oh, there you go. Good to know, good to know. So, And um, we've had a pretty scattered light falls elsewhere around the state in the 24 hours to 9 a.m. this morning. But since 9 a.m., Flinders Island had two millimetres, and Meander, Pine Tree Rivula and Lake Margaret have had one millimetre, so there's been a few light falls around today so far. For the rest of the day, we're expecting some, some more showers, about, especially about central east and eastern parts generally, and there's a possibility of a thunderstorm through the north and eastern parts, and um, especially, again, about the central east and east coast districts. Um, so, yeah, we'll be watching that one, see, see if they, they develop. Okay. And just a bit of trivia for you at uh, Wilmot, just near Erebus, that was the first Coles General Store way back when. There you go. First one in Australia. Really? Yeah. Yeah, went on to oh. Melbourne and established there, and they're everywhere now, aren't they? The big supermarket. Yeah, right. Oh, that's, okay. That's, that's pretty cool. Back to the weather, yeah. the outlook. Back to the weather. Yeah, what's it looking yeah, like? Yeah, so for the outlook, so Saturday's looking quite um, settled in between some weather events, so... Uh, just some light falls around and uh, of a one or two millimetres possible through through the state on Saturday as a bit of a ridge comes over. But we have a low-pressure system moving down from the northwest that will come over the state during Sunday and into Monday, and that's going to bring a, a fair bit of uh, rain, unfortunately, through the, through the north and the west especially. So two-day rainfalls for the event, um, we've, we're looking at... Uh, 20 to 50 millimetres uh, anywhere about the, in the north and the east of Tassie, um, 10 to 30 millimetres elsewhere. There's also a possibility of thunderstorms in, embedded in the rain band coming down, so uh, they'll increase totals a bit more. Um, yeah, so the low will move over the state late Sunday, early Monday, and then move away to the south during late Monday into Tuesday. And as that moves away to the south, we should get a, a, a cool 
west, uh, south to southwesterly flow come over the state, it'll bring the snow level down to probably around 800 metres, 900 metres, something like that. So a bit, perhaps a bit of snow on the top of the hills in the west and the south. But um, yeah, yeah, it'll be a bit of a cool cool break, dropping temperatures down to the low teens again on Tuesday. Okay. Um, bit of everything. Warnings, what have we got at the moment? There's, a, there's only strong wind warnings about, so we've got strong wind warnings today for eastern waters and southern waters from St Helens Point to Sandy Cape, so, Sandy Cape, sorry, southeast Cape, uh, and for all southeastern inshore waters except for the Derwent. Tomorrow there's a strong wind warning for the far northwest, the central north and Bank Strait and Franklin Sound coastal waters. Yeah, and they're the only warnings out. Okay. Um, and if people are looking to go out in the waters at the weekend, coastal waters and swell, what's it looking like? Yeah, sure. So uh, we have, in terms of the winds, we, today we've got north to northwesterlies at 15 to 25 knots, shifting west to southwesterly, 15 to 25 about the about the west in the late mornings, and it's actually into into Hobart now, and then extending across the south um, north, south and north in the afternoon and evening. Um, the winds will be tending southerly about the east in the evening. The uh, They'll also be reaching up to 30 knots about the southeast and the east in the afternoon and evening. The winds tomorrow, south to southwesterly, 15 to 20 knots, tending east to southeasterly during the day, and winds building to 20 to 30 knots through Bank Strait and Franklin Sound in the morning, and also about the northwest in the evening. The swell's about in the west and the south of the state. There's a southwesterly swell at two to two and a half metres. In the north today, we have a northeast northeasterly swell at one to one and a half metres and tomorrow a westerly swell at around one metre. Uh, in the east for both days there's a southerly swell to one metre but at southwesterly one to one and a half or sure in the south and then tomorrow the uh, the southerly swell is again one metre but up to two metres in the south uh, offshore in the south. Okay and the wave rider? Yeah the, the um, Mariah Island wave rider Boy, I'm going to say buoy because the Americans are in town, but uh, is <laughs> is uh, is offline at the moment, unfortunately. But uh, the Cape Sorrel one's at two and a half meters. What's he offline for? What's he What's he doing? What's that? Sorry, what's the th- Americans? No, no, no. The boy. What's What's oh, the problem? What's the p- Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, oh, okay. I've got to. Yeah, I've been really busy this morning. I've got to get look into that one, Tony. That's thanks for reminding me. Okay, <laughs> you better go yes. and do that now. Thank you, Michael. Yes, yes. <laughs> Cheers. See you later, Michael Conway from the bureau with the latest information for you. Uh, we'll talk about lightning in a bottle in a moment, um, and also take you to uh, our biggest livestock yards, where a record amount of lamb and sheep were processed yesterday or sold, I should say. They went under the auctioneer's hammer. And what did that mean for the prices? We'll ask Richard Bailey that question very shortly. Let's talk politics. Mornings with Mel Bush. We are not getting the calibre of ministers we used to have. What are your thoughts on that? I think most competent people can do the job if they stop being political in every inch of their working life. It's kill or be killed every single day. Getting Tasmania talking. Because of the fear of holding their seat, they will not call their own party to account. So it's not working. Govern, Mm. don't be political all the time. Mel Bush, weekday mornings from 8.30 on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 
Now, after a lightning storm, you might notice the plant's greener and more lush. And that's because lightning has the ability to fix the nitrogen in the air and make it available to plants. A trial on a vineyard near Auburn in South Australia has been trying to replicate that by effectively creating lightning in a bottle. As research scientist Greg Butler explains. Most people would be aware that nitrogen in nature is formed by rhizobia in the soil to form ammonium forms of nitrogen. But when a lightning strike occurs, that also forms nitrate forms of nitrogen. And the reason that occurs is because the atomic nitrogen, the N2, and the atomic oxygen, which is in the form of O2, are actually blasted apart inside the electrical arc of the lightning. And some of them recombine into a substance known as nitric oxide, which is NO. And uh, when that gets washed out with water and oxidised up, it forms nitrate-like substances. So the old wives' tale of lightning causing nitrogen to occur is actually real. It's a real thing. So what exactly are we looking at here? It's effectively mimicking lightning in a very controlled fashion. So your listeners might be able to hear the air compressor. That's really the start of it, and that's where we're taking the air. And when we think about air, thinking that's four-fifths nitrogen and about one-fifth oxygen. Um, So that's our nitrogen source. That's going through the compressor. Inside the water, there is what's called a non-thermal plasma arc. That is not hot like an arc welder, but it's still forming an electrical arc like lightning, uh, just at a much smaller controlled scale. So what happens is that inside the liquid, the air gets bubbled uh, past that arc, and that's where the conversion of these molecular forms of nitrogen and oxygen are broken apart and reform as our nitric oxides, which is the start of our fertiliser process. That's uh, dissolved into the water, and then that can be pushed out into the fertigation system. And so even though there is some complex electronics sitting behind the system, it's actually very easy to run um, and very easy for people to operate. In effect, all they really need to do is have a, a, a good quality water supply and uh, available electricity um, for the, both the compressor and to run the arc. What you've said is basically lightning in a beaker, an arc welder in a beaker. How do you actually control it to the point where you would get the desired amount of nitrogen that you could then put through a drip irrigation system, for example? So what we're seeing in this technology, last year this particular technology increased its nitrogen efficiency per kilowatt by over 20%. So we're seeing you know, quite rapid uh, increases in efficiency in the same way that solar panels increase in efficiency, computer chips increase in efficiency. So we're probably still on too much of a development curve, but what we do know is it is scalable to size. I think it's probably waiting a little bit until some of the efficiency catches up and then we'll do it. So I think we're probably two to three years away from seeing it uh, commercially available. It is obviously quite sophisticated science, but just looking at it here, there's pretty much just some pipes and an air compressor pushing water and and air into a beaker. It looks relatively low tech wise. As you said, it is just in its its prototype sort of phase at the moment, development phase. But is this something that could be deployed on farms with relative ease? Oh, I think so. Um, I think uh, in the first instance, doing direct nitrogen into the liquid and putting it into something like a fertigation system, uh, potentially into a aquaponic or hydroponic system where people uh, have a continual water circulation. So at this, at this point in time, we're a bit limited in the granular form. This produces a liquid form of, of nitrogen, so it's very well suited to the irrigation, fertigation, uh, permanent water sort of production. Potentially, um, we do know that substances like biochar are very good at sticking to these forms of nitrogen, 
and you can think about biochar being like a bit like a carbon filter so that actually if we did want to put into a physical form um, that could be handled in like a granular type of system then we might end up being able to just put that onto a carrier and deposit that nitrogen and ammonia onto the carrier. What's the next step now? You've, you're proving up the concept here. What's next? <clears throat> so we're about to move into the commissioning phase. So what that really means is fine-tuning it, starting to understand about you know the recycling and concentrating, um, getting it pumped into the fertigation system, doing some simple trials on relatively small blocks. And from there, we look at scale and, and further efficiency. So... Um, the commissioning phase will probably take us through to about February next year and then we should have a system that we can actually run in the practical sense even though it's going to be small scale it should run as the vineyard would want it and I guess we just look at that over the whole next year or two see how well that's running and from there we can start to quantify some numbers and look at the economics of what it would mean to purchase one of these systems rather than buying nitrogen out of the current supply chain. Research scientist Greg Butler the trial is taking place on a vineyard in the Clare Valley near Auburn in South Australia. Given the concerns around the sustainability of nitrogen fertiliser production and its cost, the vineyard manager with Randall Wine Group, Michael Paxton, is keen to see if the system will work for them. Traditionally, um, fertigation is the most efficient way of getting fertiliser, particularly nitrogen, to the plant, um, to the roots. So that part of it is... Um, uh, well rehearsed by us but this technology pulling it out of the air just seems like a, a fantastic uh, opportunity to get involved with investigating the future really. What would it mean to you to be able to fertilise your crops using nitrogen pulled out of the air? Oh it'd just be absolutely fantastic. I mean we're talking about sustainability, we're, we're part of uh, sustainability wine grapes australia and this is proper sustainability from a dollars and cents point of view though what's the cost effectiveness of it given you have to run the machine and things like that it, it seems that the machine will run from solar panels so that will be relatively low cost and compared to buying nitrogen as all farmers know uh, urea is extremely uh, expensive and the, the price is increasing, so um, it is, it's just going to be a really good option. What stage of the process are you up to? We've just got the um, small trial unit uh, in place in the shed. Um, you can hear it buzzing in the background. We are working with the university uh, who also have a, have a unit and between the two of us, we, we're doing the um, field trials. We hope that we will have some really good positive results and we'll be able to scale it up and it will be, supply, be able to supply us all our nitrogen requirements in the future. Doing some amazing stuff. Vineyard Manager with the Randall Wine Group, Michael Paxton, speaking there to Cassie Huff. And we also heard from research scientist Greg Butler explaining the project, which is one of the recipients of the federal government's first round of supply chain resilience grants. It's received 232000 in matched dollar-for-dollar funding. Coming up in just a moment, we'll look at uh, the huge yarding of lamb and sheep at our biggest sale yard and what that meant for prices. This week on Landline, as China turns away from Australian wine, India is shaping up. It definitely is a market that Australian producers are looking to invest in, um, particularly once the free trade agreement comes into force. And boot scooting life 
back into WA's small halls. Those town halls, there's just so much heritage in them and so much feeling. That's Landline Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on iview. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, these are mind-boggling figures. The latest lamb and sheep sale at Wagga yesterday created a new record for the numbers of stock. It didn't quite reach the amount expected earlier in the week. Around 107,000 lamb and sheep were due to go under the hammer yesterday, but the numbers fell back to 80,650, which is still a new record. Manager at Wagga Livestock Yards, Paul Martin, told reporter Simon Wallace the facility is set up to manage those huge numbers of lamb and sheep. Still quite a quite a significant number of stock to sell for the day, but uh, the facility and the and the agents are well and truly up to the task. So eighty thousand is a record. It will be, yeah, yep. Now you've you've got that one's probably a little bit dusty in my memory, but it was uh, I think it was back twenty twelve somewhere around there, maybe twenty twelve. I'd stand corrected on that, um, but it was uh, that was a record set through drought years. Uh, so this is uh, this is vastly different as well to see a record or, or, or a number of stock at, at this at this time of year, and we're we're talking real good quality finished stock, you know. So it's uh, it's a really it's a real positive for it's a positive for the producers. It's a positive for you know everybody involved. Why do you think it's so high? Why are you getting so many numbers? The continued wet, you know, seeing the, the, the impact that the Lachlan flooding there through Forbes has had. Forbes is our closest uh, large sheep selling centre to, to Wagga. Logic would say that anything south of the Lachlan that is ready for market is, you know, may well be coming here instead. At the end of the day, too, it's it's a seasonal or it's, it's considered a, a standard sort of seasonal movement of the stock that we'll see our numbers increase this time of year. So I guess that impacted with the, with the wet people having access to, to their stock and, and transport. You know, it's all sort of accumulating into one point. Do you have the facilities, the space, the pens with enough cover to look after animals well under those conditions? Yes, we do. Uh, given it would, it would require some staging, uh, certainly, you know, so static capacity versus overall capacity to handle large volumes are two totally different things here. Uh, so static capacity, if, if you looked at having 107,000 head on site, trying to trying to work them at it at the exact same point in time, no, that would be unreasonable to consider. Uh, however, given given the design of the facility with the appropriate transport logistics in and out. The, the theory of, of the design is it's, it's infinite. Uh, as long as we've got stock being able to be removed once they've got here, then we can just keep putting more through. So, you know, we, we obviously have uh, access to some large layerage, short to medium term stays post-sale as well. In regards to the, the welfare of the stock that are being presented, you know, we, we have the capacity to handle that as well. That's the manager of the Wagga Livestock Yards, Paul Martin, talking to reporter Simon Wallace about the record number of lamb and sheep at yesterday's Wagga sale, 80,650, which did include 64,000 lambs. So, Richard Bailey, our livestock reporter, with those huge numbers through the yards, did that make a big impact on the prices paid? 
Yeah, definitely made a bit of a difference, Tony. Good afternoon. Hello. Um, but there's a bit more to it than that because we didn't just have those big numbers at Wagga. All the other sale yards were up, you know. Uh, give you an example. Bendigo were 28,000, up 6,000. Ballarat, 30,000, up 10,000. Horsham, 19,000, up 9,000. And Hamilton, 13,000, up 10,000. And that figure at Hamilton... Uh, will grow in the next couple of weeks to probably 50 or 60,000. So um, it's a combination across. And, of course, by the time we got to Wagga yesterday, we saw some significant price adjustments, um, 15 to $20 on the better lambs and 30 to $40 a head on the secondary lambs. And just looking at some video of that sale at Wagga, there were plenty of secondary lambs in the market. Um, the, we're going to see a fair bit of this because right across the board, they're telling me in Western Victoria it's going to be the same, where these very wet conditions have meant that a lot of these lambs haven't done very well. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next couple of weeks. Because because the other thing that the other side of this is that the season throughout Eastern Australia is pretty good, and whether or not producers will take the take the view, well, hang on a minute, uh, we're not just going to flood lambs in for the fun of it. We'll hold lambs. Uh, will be the other thing that will happen, which may or may not happen. The next couple of weeks, three weeks, will tell a big story, I reckon. But yeah. uh, certainly, um, it meant that you, at Wagga yesterday, your better heavy lambs made anywhere from 210 to $262. It meant there were a lot of lambs under $200 that last week were above $200, if that makes sense. And trade weight lambs sort of anywhere from 140 to $200 a head. Big range, but Big difference in quality, as I said a minute ago. So um, interesting times ahead. I mean, we've been sort of expecting this to happen. Uh, it was a matter of when, really. Yeah. How will that flow on to Tasmanian sales next week, do you think? Um, I, we're sort of different because our new season's lambs don't really start in earnest for another couple of weeks. We did see quite a few in, at Piranha on Tuesday, but a lot, most of them were uh, store lambs, light lambs. Um, it'll be a few, another two or three weeks before we see any decent number of, of uh, killable lambs in our market, I think. Um, it obviously will make it... Because on Tuesday at Piranha, we had an extra buyer in the market, or extra couple of buyers really in the market, uh, export buyers. Those buyers may not be there next week. It'll be interesting to see because obviously they've been able to access um, a lot of lambs out of those interstate markets. But... At the end of the day, um, that'll settle. I'm, I'm guessing it'll settle down over the next couple of weeks, Tony. Yeah. What about mutton? There was a huge uh, number of mutton at uh, at Wagga yesterday as well. Um, yeah, good numbers of mutton. Um, yeah, that market came back um, anywhere from twenty to thirty dollars, but that happened. That started to happen at Bendigo on Monday. They, the, the mutton markets come back right through the week. I would imagine. I think we've said this before that while. Uh, you've got these huge numbers of lambs around. I reckon exporters will concentrate on killing lambs rather than mutton, and so that takes a bit of the sting out of the mutton job. Um, plenty of mutton on on uh, Monday and Tuesday, quoted anywhere from 380 to 450 cents a kilo, which means that it takes a very good sheep to make $150 at the moment. Um, I suppose you could argue that that's 
not bad for an old sheep, but uh, when you consider that probably this time last year there were plenty of those bigger sheep making closer to two hundred dollars. Yep. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that's the way that it happens. Season wise, um, we've got <laughs> in Tassie we've gone from too wet to needing a drop of rain, and today we've had a little bit of rain in parts. I'm not sure how widespread it is. My garden was certainly looking out for a bit of rain last night, and it got a bit overnight. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Anything else, uh, Lamb and Sheep? It's been a big week, hasn't it, boy? Yeah, but it's that time of the year, Tony, when, when the big lamb numbers start. As I said a minute ago, we, we start to switch uh, across to Western Victoria, and, and as you saw, you know, uh, Hamilton jumped from... 3,000 to 13,000 in a week yeah. and next week will be 20,000 and the following week will be 50 or 60,000 and they'll split their sale. They'll have two-day sales. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the New South Wales markets um, because I didn't didn't talk about the Dubbo, Forbes, Corora markets that were also had more lambs in them. So uh, the New South, it's well documented that the New South Wales season's running late. So unfortunately, it'll probably mean a lot of lambs around for. A sh- I don't know whether whether it'll be a short period or be it'll be for um, till well after Christmas. Time will tell on that. Okay, let's head over to the cattle side of things. What's happening there? Cattle markets are staying fairly similar, um, up and down just slightly. There's just a little bit of an easing in, in some prime cattle markets, and the major reason for that is that the feedlots have pulled back a little bit. I reckon, they, I reckon they reckon they're probably paying enough, or have been paying enough, and I think there's probably a bit of concern about with the, these um, crop losses in New South and Queensland that where the grain price will end up. Uh, but they've pulled back a little bit, which has meant the whole job's just come back a little bit in places. But you've still got all your better cows, for instance, in, in all the big markets, still making anywhere from sort of 380 to 420 cents a kilo, and in, in, in places just a little bit more. But a lot of averages sitting around that 400 to 410 cents a kilo. Your grown steers and bullocks, similar type market, um, 445. We um, saw some grown steers get up well over 500 cents, but the majority of them a bit over 500 cents. So um, that's hanging on pretty well. And then your younger cattle, um, the, the, the younger cattle to go to the butcher shops, of course, are staying pretty strong because they the, the competition there is mainly from the restockers for, for um, to eat the grass, and uh, it means that the uh, the butchers and the processors are having to pay up. For, for, for good quality vealers and yearlings, you know, they're, they're having to pay anywhere from sort of four fifty to five fifty cents a kilo, and a, there are a few vealers making up to six hundred cents. So, um, pretty good, pretty good if you're selling cattle at the moment. Okay, and we've got the store cattle sale coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's on the twenty fourth. Um, Smithton have got a sale that looked like it's going to have a few numbers in it the week before. Um, so yeah, there'll be a few. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. They're saying in Victoria um, that a lot of people are now holding their cattle back and will wait for the wheat calf sales, which most of them start in sort of December and go through January, February. Um, I think that we'll still have a few good numbers around us this next sale, and maybe it peter off a little bit in December. Um, always hard to tell. Have you picked your broad beans yet? 
No, not yet, but we're getting close. Or a lot of, lot of little beans just, <laughs> just waiting. <laughs> I started picking this week. They are just beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing like it. Nothing like a, a, a young, fresh, broad bean. How about your tomatoes? I reckon no, I'm probably in front of you with tomatoes this year. You probably are. You probably are. But that's all right. You know, slow and steady wins the race. You know, the old, <laughs> eh? the hare and the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> You're the hair. <laughs> Have a good weekend, Tony. All the best, Richard Bailey. Thank you. Talk to you next Wednesday. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, you hear Richard Bailey every Friday and Wednesday on the Country Hour with the latest on the livestock markets and the broad bean situation. They are beautiful at the moment. Uh, Will, yeah, I agree. Will, there'd be a lot of sheep to count if you were going to sleep. 80,000. You'd be dead asleep by the time you got anywhere near that. Okay, have a great weekend. Keep safe, whatever you're doing, and we will catch you at midday Monday.